All right, you got your Bibles open, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I finally got to turn the page on my Bible after uh, five weeks on the other page. Uh, we're going to wrap this up in the next couple of weeks. And um, let's start with this question. This is a, a really telling question. If I knew I only had 12 months to live, how would I spend that time? Think about it. Next July, I'm done. How am I going to spend the next 12 months? And the answer says everything about, listen, whatever answer you give, it says a lot about your identity, everything about your identity, what you think your purpose is, and the kinds of things you value. However you're going to answer that, it's, it's, it speaks to your identity, your, your purpose in life, and what you really, really value. And many people will actually say, well, I have 12 months to live. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a bucket list out. You know about the bucket list, right? And the bucket list is literally the things I want to do before I kick the bucket, okay? Before I kick the bucket, all the things I want to do. And most people, the things they have on their bucket list, because I, I, I searched this on this really, really reputable source called Google, If you, if you search it out, the kinds of things that you top 10 things to put on your bucket list, listen, it's almost always trips, adventures, experiences, and learning new things. Now, listen, not assuming anything, but for the believers in the room, okay, not assuming everything, everybody here is a believer, but for the believers in the room, the question, what am I going to spend with the next 12 months if that's all I have left to live should be a pretty obvious one. The answer should be a pretty obvious one. And it should actually elicit a second question. For us, the question should be, how can I best fulfilled, how can I best fulfill what Jesus has given me to do in this world? With the time I have left, how can I best fulfill the mission that Jesus has given to me? And, and listen, in today's passage, the Apostle Paul kind of heads us down that road and he speaks of the mission that he and his associates were on and he offers his confidence that the Thessalonian believers are also doing and will do the things that God had commanded them to do. Which presses you and me again because we're getting God's word open not to learn some history about some church from 2,000 years ago. We're opening the word of God today to see what it has to say to us today in our situation, in our lives. It presses you and me to consider whether or not as believers we're on mission for Christ in this world. With whatever time we have left. And none of us is guaranteed another minute. So this is important. It's critical for us. So let me read the passage and then I'll pray. And we'll go after it. This is uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, the first five verses. Finally, brothers, uh, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered uh, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pray.
Father, uh, we give this time to you, not that it isn't already yours, not that you're not going to accomplish your purposes no matter what happens here, but Father, we, we invite you to come and, and we surrender ourselves to your word, the hearing of it, the grasping of it, and the submission to it. So Father, do a deep work in this room today, bring clarity to us concerning our mission in this world, what this church, what each Christian in this room ought to be about. And Father, do this for your own glory and your own name's sake. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, as a believer, uh, I am to be on mission for Christ in this world. Let's talk first of prayer. Uh, Prayer, need it. Prayer is needed, and there's no way that we can do what we do as a church, what we do as the followers of Christ, apart from seeking God's favor favor on our feeble efforts. The best efforts that we bring to the table are still so weak in terms of being able to accomplish anything of eternal significance. You can imagine, I have spent hours and hours Uh, writing, studying, praying about, crafting this sermon. It is a weak effort apart from the power of God. You can imagine that our worship team spent time preparing and rehearsing and putting many hours into their craft. And it is a feeble effort, no matter how well it came off. It's a feeble effort apart from the power of God. High five is coming up. The hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of man hours that have gone into preparation for what's going to happen in the next five days on this campus. A feeble effort apart from the power of God. And that's why Paul starts out the way he does. The work that we've been asked to do requires supernatural strength and supernatural wisdom and supernatural intervention into the plans and the preparations that we have. So Paul's fronting prayer like he always does. And he, he's already pledged in the verses we looked at last week. He's already pledged his prayer for them. And now he's soliciting their prayer for him. He asked the Thessalonians to pray for him and his team. In the first couple of verses saying, finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Now, why does Paul, he's the great apostle. I mean, arguably the best Christian leader of all time. God asked him and worked by the Holy Spirit through him to write the 13 of the New Testament letters, books. This is the Apostle Paul. And yet he now says to the Thessalonians who are brand new baby Christians, he says to them, would you pray for us? Why is he soliciting the prayers of these weak New believers for this strong Christian leader. I wrote down a few ideas of why he would do that. First of all, because Paul believes in the power of prayer. We have it as one of our pillars. We believe firmly in the power of prayer. Might actually just say that in a little bit better way. We believe, we believe in the power of God through prayer. Isn't that better? We believe in the power of God through prayer. As Paul did. And he, like us, wants all the power he can get as he preaches the gospel and as he plants churches. And we want all the power that we can get on this ministry. 
Secondly, uh, the reason why Paul solicits their prayers is because Paul knows that something changes inside of us as we interact with the Lord in prayer. So this is to the benefit of the Thessalonian believers as well, to be asked to pray and to be engaged in his ministry by praying. And the thing about prayer is that we may not get the thing we ask for, but the thing that we always get when we go to prayer, every single time the thing that we get is greater intimacy with our God. Isn't that better than the answer to any other prayer? Any requests we might, might make? God is so awesome to do that for us. Here's a third reason he asked them to pray. He's teaching them something about the nature of the mission and the ownership that we all have for it. No matter what part we play, we don't hire people to proclaim the gospel. We all have responsibility for the mission. And he's saying that the praying is just as important as the preaching. That's where the power is coming from as we seek the Lord for all of these things. And I remember this quote from so many years ago. It was applied uh, to uh, Hudson Taylor in a biography that I read, but uh, possibly Augustine said it, not sure, and I've adapted it here, but pray as if everything depends on the, work, on the praying and work as if everything depends on the working. And every Christian person, no matter what role you play, servant or leader, no matter what it is, this should be characteristic of our lives. We should pray as if everything depends on the praying and we should work as if everything depends on the working. And Paul, I believe, was trying to teach the Thessalonians that. And then reason why, reasons why Paul asked him to pray forth, I just wrote down, when we lean into the Lord and express our dependency on him for the results, we're going to see God work in ways that we could never have imagined. God's going to work in an, in an amazing way. And, and then because he worked beyond our abilities, beyond our capabilities, God's going to get the glory for that. And one of the most awesome verses about this is in a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. His second letter, he, he wrote this. We have this treasure. And he's speaking about the gospel. We have this gospel treasure, this, this thing that we've been entrusted with. We have this treasure in jars of clay, these, these fragile containers. He's talking about us. We have the gospel contained inside of us, and we're so weak and fragile. But we have that treasure in these weak vessels to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. The surpassing power belongs to God. That's what I thought. It belongs to God, not to us. If awesome things happen, and they will, at high five in the next five years, five days, five years. I just lost Jeannie. She's gone. She's... Listen, if awesome things happen in the next week, and they will, the glory belongs to God. Not to the efforts of anybody, and many, many efforts are going into it, but it all, it all belongs to God. The glory is his so with regard to this mission prayer need it secondly um, urgency urgency embraced now notice that the first thing that paul actually asked him to pray for in verse one is that the word of the lord may speed ahead and and be honored so it there's an urgency to this and there's also a priority to this 
It's at the center of everything that we do. It's honored above everything else. The preaching of the word of God, the preaching of the gospel is the very center and the whole thing that we're about. Urgency embraced. When it comes to the destiny of eternal souls, there's no time to waste. People are dying without Christ all around us every day. In fact, I searched some numbers uh, from Stats Canada. And uh, did you know that fewer Canadians, this probably won't be surprising when you think about it, but fewer Canadians die in the summer. It's kind of like, finally, we made it, right? We got to summer. Uh, Fewer Canadians die in the summer months. And um, that just proves that the season that shall not be named, okay, is hard on us as Canadians. In fact, June, the month that just passed, June has the lowest death rate of all months. But on average, if you take the average of all months over the course of a year in Canada, every month, 24,000 Canadians die. That means that every six months, if you're thinking about the population of the city of Barrie, that every six months, the equivalent of our population as a city dies and passes into eternity, or about 300,000 Canadians every year die. I didn't do the math to figure out, I'm not really good at math, but um, I didn't do the math to figure out that in the 18 years that we've been a church, I mean, how, how many, what is that, uh, 44,000 or something? Four, uh, four, 40, see, I shouldn't have done the math. I just shouldn't have done it. <laughs> 18 times 300K. Do you sense the urgency of people dying without Christ? I get that we grieve when they die. I get that we grieve when loved ones and friends die, when we hear about that, and we get so sad about it, and largely we're sad because we're separated from them. We're not going to see them anymore. And, and largely we're grieving for ourselves. But so many of them that are passing are passing with, away without Jesus. Perhaps without hearing a clear explanation of the gospel. Perhaps without experiencing the genuine love of a Christian who moved toward them in such a way, just unconditionally, to love them and care for them that they'd never seen that before and that that might draw them to Christ. If we truly believe that those without Christ enter eternity forever separated from God and in never-ending torment, why would we not devote ourselves to the mission? And it's not like there isn't a lack of clarity on this. Jesus said it to his first disciples and commissioned all of us. At the end of Matthew in chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, he said, go Therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The command in that line is not the going. The command is the make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize. How are we going to make disciples? You're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you're going to teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. I mean, is there anyone that's confused about what that says or means? Then just before the ascension, 
Acts 1.8, he said it in a very similar way, but he kind of gave more of a strategy now. And he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay, we have the advantage of the indwelling and empowering Holy Spirit now. They were still kind of waiting for that to happen. And you will be my witnesses. Not you might be, not I'm going to call some of you to do it. You will be my witnesses. And then he gives the strategy. You're going to start in Jerusalem. You're going to move to Judea. You're going to go to Samaria. And then the part that we're still seeking to fulfill, the ends of the earth, just go everywhere and tell everyone about Jesus Christ. Again, it just seems super clear to me. The urgency and the priority of this mission must be embraced by all. All right, ready for another one? Success, thank you. Success pursued. Now, Paul cites the example of of, of Thessalonica here to make his point about the urgency of the mission when he says, again, right in verse 1, as happened among you. The word of God sped to you. The word of God was honored towards you. The, the, The urgency and the priority of the gospel was the very reason why we went to Macedonia, the very reason why we went to Thessalonica and preached the gospel to you. In fact, Paul could even have in his mind when they were still over in Asia and doing ministry over there and no missionary had ever gone to Europe. No one had ever preached the gospel in Europe. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul says, I had this vision and there was a Macedonian man who said, come over here and help us come to Europe and preach the gospel. And we had success when we did it. We listened, got on a boat, we came over. We started proclaiming the message in in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And you came to Jesus. You received the message of the gospel. We had success in Thessalonica just like we pursued it. Now, the nature of success is a tricky thing in ministry today. And we could ask the question, what makes this church successful? Why have so many people come here? Why do we have two services? Why are we seeing people come to Christ? Why so many kids signed up for high five? Why are we successful? The nature of success is a very tricky thing in ministry, in North America in particular, because we've gotten to this place where we're so driven by metrics. We're so strongly influenced by the business sector and what they say constitutes success in life and in business. In our minds, success is numbers. Are the numbers up or are they not? If they're up, we're successful. If they're not, uh, we're not. And we believe that if we don't have ever-increasing numbers, that somehow we're failing. And it seems to me, as I read the Scriptures, that just isn't true. Because it assumes something of God. And I read a book several years ago by Kent and Barbara Hughes and It's called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And uh, this is what uh, they wrote in the book. Scripture consistently links success to obedience, not numbers, 
to obedience, our obedience to God's word. And in their book, they cited Charles Colson, who that name you, many of you will know. He's now with the Lord, but he, he established prison fellowship ministries. And Colson said this when he was reflecting on the success of prison fellowship. As much as I am sincerely certain that God is indeed blessing us, I believe in even more certainly that it's a dangerous and misguided policy to measure God's blessing by standards of visible, tangible, material, and he puts in quotes, success. That's a dangerous business to think of it in that way. Now, Paul's writing this letter from Corinth, and later he would actually write to the Corinthians. After he left there, he'd write back to them, and he's addressing this problem back in Corinth where they were kind of all dividing up, aligning with certain leaders. Some liked Paul. Paul's my guy. I'm following Paul. Some of them like this guy, Apollos. I really like his teaching. He's such a great guy. Some of them were into Peter. And the super spiritual ones were like, well, I'm just for Jesus, you know. Jesus juke and and just make everyone else feel bad because you're the hyper spiritual ones. And listen... Paul wrote later on in that letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but, and this is the key to it, it's the key to understanding success. Paul's involved, he's a great apostle. Apollos is involved, he's a great leader and teacher in the church. But God gave the growth one was watering one was planting but it's god who gives the growth so paul writes neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything the preacher isn't anything the worship team isn't anything but only god who gives the growth The planting guy and the watering guy don't necessarily even see the fruit. They don't get to count the converts. They don't get to see the numbers. But are they successful in the preaching, in the the planting, in 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 the tilling of the soil, in the watering of the ground? Did they do what God told them to do? If they did, even if they didn't see the results, they were successful. Every one of them involved. And in the end, God is the one who makes it all happen. So success is not necessarily, listen, success is not necessarily conversions and baptisms and number of members and number of churches planted. Success is obedience. If you want to write anything down, just put that down. Success is obedience. Am I doing what Jesus told me to do? Did I pursue what God told me to do regardless of result? Or another way of saying it, your mission is is to ensure they hear the gospel, not that they receive it. God's job is to save them. God gives the growth. So when it comes to directly explaining the gospel to people, proclaiming it and preaching it, telling your story of how you came to faith in Christ. All of that 
I get that some of us shrink back from that when that opportunity is presented. That may not be the number one thing you're always asked to do, but it may happen occasionally. We all have a part to play in this. There are certainly people in our lives that we ought to be telling the story to. And you might say that one of the challenges you face is simply not knowing what to say. That you feel so weak and frail in the face of it. And that's the best place to be so the power of God can work through you. But we want to pray as if everything depends on the praying. And we want to work as if everything depends on the working. So we want to prep for this. Because God, for his own reasons, invites and commissions feeble, frail people to do this. To obey his word, to fulfill his mission. So that his grace is fully on display. God himself gets the credit. We must still do it. And if you need some help with this, by the way, I would, I would just point you again to uh, hbc.info. And if you, um, if you scroll uh, down to the next steps tab and down to the bottom of that, you're going to see uh, five gospel words. And uh, this is a great way to get into your mind what it means and into your heart what it means to explain the gospel to someone and really understand the gospel. And that may be helpful for you to have. And that's always there on that site. So you can always access it even when you're sharing the gospel with someone or send the link. All right. Prayer needed. Urgency embrace. Uh, success pursued. And opposition faced. Oh, this isn't going to be easy? Uh, no, not going to be easy. Paul asked them also, verse 2, to pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for, um, this is an obvious statement, for not all have faith, not everyone's saved. So no one's saved by default. Uh, all paths do not lead to God. All gods are not in the end the same God. None of that. Not all have faith. Not all are saved. And that's the reason why we're preaching the gospel. Let them know about Jesus. And it's well attested to that Paul and in fact all of the apostles and early Christians faced uh, daunting and uh, daunting challenges as, as a result of professing faith in Christ. They faced persecution for all of that at the end of this series, which again ends next weekend. I'm going to take two weeks to talk about the persecuted church, uh, both in history and today. Jesus had said that Christians would have, uh, would have to, this is from Luke 9.23, that we would have to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. And that strongly indicated the kind of life that Christians would be compelled to live. And in many places of the world today, Christians face the same kind of opposition that the, the apostles faced um, in the first century. Poverty, beatings, imprisonment, family separation, and even death. And Jesus said that when that kind of opposition comes at you, it's actually for you as a follower of Christ, not in any kind of a prideful way, but it is a badge of honor. In the Beatitudes, or right at the end of the Beatitudes, the last of them, Matthew 5, 10, and 10, 11, and 12, blessed are those, Jesus said this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed Happy are you, fulfilled are you, completed are you, 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account because simply because you're preaching the gospel. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice at persecution. Be glad at opposition, Jesus says. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, while that kind of uh, persecution might, might happen to some people here, but it's rare, might happen to you and me, more likely the opposition that we face looks a little different than that. And I would say that a good portion of the opposition we face, the biggest opposition I face to proclaiming the gospel to people is me. It's me. But there are pressures that come from without as well. Let, let me give you these eight, eight kinds of opposition we could face while on mission for Christ. Catchy title. Eight, eight kinds of opposition we could face while on mission for Christ. Number one, our own laziness and complacency. True or false? A reluctant true. I get it. Secondly, a buying into the culture of live and let live. We live in this highly tolerant culture. It's a high value in our country and everybody has rights and everybody does have rights. They're guaranteed by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We, we should enjoy that because we get the blessing of that charter as well. But when that translates into me holding back and proclaiming the gospel because I think everyone should just, you know, go off and live their own life and I'm not going to bother them if they don't bother me, that's not the mandate. That's not what Jesus told us to do. Thirdly, bad theology that undermines the necessity of evangelism and church planting. That I just start to distort the scriptures so I give myself a pass. I don't have to do this. Someone else is going to do this, or it doesn't need to be done, or it's already all done. Or everyone that's going to be saved is going to be saved anyways because God elected them. I don't really need to avenge. That's all bad theology. Fourth, a fear of offending. Five, a fear of failing. Well, see, we've already addressed that, right? Success is, is obedience to actually proclaim the gospel. Success is not they come to Jesus. Not necessarily. So I can't fail as long as I'm actually proclaiming it. Six, a fear of confrontation. Seven, misplaced priorities. That is to say, I'm, I'm not really wanting to upset my comfortable life. See how these oppositions are coming from within us? And, and then eight, this one's kind of sad. Other Christians who think we're too zealous... Oh, why are you going out and sharing the gospel all the time? Why are you telling people about Jesus? Kind of like a little bit, you know, over the top there. You just need to settle down. We have a good thing going here. That's the kind of opposition that we face. And no matter what opposition is faced, this is always true. Look at verse 3 now. But the Lord is faithful. No matter what you're facing right now, God is faithful. In other words, He's going to get done what he wants to get done, and he will establish you. We saw that word already. He's going to set you firmly in place so that you are not moving. 
No opposition is going to move you off the foundation of Jesus Christ. He's going to establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we can get to the place where we think that the opposition is the person who's fronting us. The person who's upset with us. The person who's persecuting us. But that is not the opposition. At the end of the day, whether it's our own flesh or whether it's, it's cultural influences or it's a person who's in front of us who seems like they're our enemy, they are not the opposition, the true opposition. Paul says it right here. It's the evil one. Whoever the human agent is, the real enemy is Satan, is it? He's the real enemy. And so the person who's red in the face opposing us because of the gospel, that person must still be loved in Jesus' name. Must be loved unconditionally. No matter how far off the mark we think they are morally. No matter how distant they are from the gospel. No matter what they say to us. They are not the enemy. They need the gospel. They need to be loved. Because the real enemy is the evil one. All right. One more. And this might be the key to it all as it so often is in the scripture, as believer, as a believer, I'm to be on mission for Christ in this world. So my heart, all in. All in. Paul says in verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord about you. The we there, of course, is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, all of them kind of writing this letter, though Paul is the lead. These three had no doubt that the Thessalonians were all in for Jesus. And opposition, the opposition that the Thessalonians were facing, the direct persecution that was coming against the gospel and against them, opposition has a way of proving the legitimacy of our faith. Don't you think that's true? Opposition has a way of proving the legitimacy of our faith. Because if you aren't really into Jesus... Like, I mean, if you're just playing a game here this morning, I kind of come and do the church thing, not really engaged, not really believing it, not really into Jesus in the way that I see others are. If that's true for you, when persecution comes, well, listen, you're just going to, you're going to melt away. Persecution will sift you out. Because you're not going to stick around to be on mission. You're not going to stick around to live a holy life if someone is pressuring you about that, if you've never actually made a commitment to Jesus Christ, why would you stand for him? But Paul knew, Timothy and Silas knew, that they had indeed made that commitment, talking of the Thessalonians. And so he says, we know, verse 4, notice, this is really key, that you are doing now, you are doing now, and will do in an ongoing way in the future the things that we command. Namely, these are the things he's talked about in the letter. Obey the word, whatever God says. Live holy lives. Be on mission for Jesus Christ. 
And Paul expresses his confidence. They're going to be faithful. They're going to be faithful at all of these things until the coming of Jesus Christ. And I saw this quote from Soren Kierkegaard this week that really applies. The thing is to understand myself. In other words, to know who I am in Christ. The thing is to understand myself, to see what God really wishes me to do, my mission. To find the idea for which I can live and die. So have you found that idea yet? Have you found the idea for which you would live and die? The idea is Jesus Christ. The idea is the gospel bringing hope and salvation to this world. Have you found that? Would you live and die for that? Paul expresses this aspiration for them because they had found it. Verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. To understand that he loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. That whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. And also, that the Lord would direct their hearts to the steadfastness of Christ, who endured that death on the cross, who endured the shame of it. He was steadfast, who took his, our guilt upon himself, though he was guiltless. And covering our sin with his blood so that, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you have an all in heart for that mission. As believers, we are to be on mission for Christ in this world, and the mission is to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. And the simple question is, if you profess to be a Christian, what are you doing to make that happen? To play off verse 4, are you doing and will you do the things that God commands? Will you do and are you doing the things that God commands?